Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. In the early morning of Monday, August 18th, 2003, a woman sat in her car overlooking the seaside town of Conception Bay South, a picturesque and popular beach town along the Avalon Peninsula and about 25 kilometers from St. John's, Newfoundland. Growing up in Newfoundland, 42-year-old Shirley Turner loved going to the beach in the summer with her family. But that was something she hadn't done in a very long time. Sleeping soundly in the back of the car was Shirley's 13-month-old son, Zachary. Like many babies his age, car rides soothed him. But Zachary wasn't a fussy baby to begin with. He was a happy, easygoing toddler who was just learning to walk. He was so much like his father was at that age, according to his doting grandparents. Zachary was Shirley's fourth child, one she hadn't planned for or expected. The baby's father had been killed before he was born, and now Shirley was certain her time with her son was coming to an end. Soon, she would be forced to leave her home in Newfoundland and return to the United States. It was unlikely she would ever return. Zachary's grandparents would raise him, and Shirley knew she would eventually be forgotten. This didn't sit well with her. She loved her baby, and it wasn't fair that they should be separated. Regardless of what she had been accused of, she was still Zachary's mother. And if she couldn't have him, no one could. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the story of a baby boy born under the most difficult of circumstances. His mother, accused of killing his father before he was born, escapes back to her native Canada in the hopes of avoiding extradition to the United States to stand trial for murder. Having lost their only son to the murderous rage of his jealous ex-lover, the baby's American grandparents relocate to Newfoundland in the hopes of gaining custody of their unborn grandson. But 
After the baby is born, the Newfoundland courts and family services leave him in the care of his mother, a clearly unstable woman who has been charged with first-degree murder. While the extradition process drags on, Zachary's grandparents are willing to do just about anything to spend time with their grandson, even if it means making a deal with a devil named Shirley Turner. But Zachary's grandparents and everyone else involved have no idea how far this dangerous devil is willing to go to get what she wants. This is Failing Zachary, a murder most preventable. My closest friend since the age of seven had been killed. When I had to say, was my son murdered? Shirley Jane Turner was born on January 28, 1961, in Wichita, Kansas. Her father was an American military man, while her mother was from St. Anthony, Newfoundland. When Shirley's parents eventually divorced, she and her three siblings moved with their mother back to Newfoundland. In 1980, at the age of 19, Shirley enrolled at Memorial University in St. John's with the intention of pursuing a medical degree. A year later, Shirley discovered she was pregnant, so she and her longtime boyfriend got married. Their son was born in July 1982. The couple agreed that Shirley would continue her medical studies while her husband became a stay-at-home dad. Three years later, they welcomed a daughter, but by that time the marriage was already in trouble. Shirley had resumed a romantic relationship with an old boyfriend and eventually divorced her first husband to marry her former lover. In 1990, Shirley gave birth to another daughter, but two years later, her second marriage was also over. Now a single mom with three young children, Shirley did what she could to scrape by. She took a teaching job and took in boarders. She was intent on completing her undergraduate degree so she could apply to medical school. Shirley often talked about pursuing a medical degree because she said she wanted to help others. But it was eventually discovered that her home life was not necessarily reflective of a caring and compassionate individual. In 1993, a man who had been a boarder at Shirley's house told his therapist that he had witnessed Shirley being physically and emotionally abusive to her children. An investigation was launched by the Newfoundland Children's Aid Society, and two of Shirley's children said that their mother had beaten them with a belt. Shirley and her second husband both said she only used the belt to threaten the kids, so the case was closed. Not long after, Shirley decided she'd had enough of being a mother. She gave her youngest daughter to her ex-husband and sent her two oldest children to live with her mother in Parsons Pond, a tiny hamlet on Newfoundland's northern peninsula. With the children in the care of others, Shirley was finally able to concentrate on her main goal, to become a doctor. 
she received her undergraduate degree from Memorial University in May of 1994, and then began her four-year medical degree. And while she was focused on her studies, the twice-divorced Shirley Turner was still looking for love. In March of 1996, Turner began a relationship with a man named Miles Doucette, who was 13 years her junior. But Doucette found Shirley to be too intense and possessive. After breaking up, Shirley began stalking him and leaving him threatening phone calls. She then followed him to Halifax, and when he said he didn't want to see her, she struck him in the jaw with her shoe. Doucette didn't go to the police, but decided to move further away from his volatile ex-girlfriend. He relocated to rural Pennsylvania. But Shirley Turner did not take rejection well. The threatening phone calls resumed, and it wasn't long before she showed up unannounced at Doucette's new home, 2,500 kilometers from St. John's, Newfoundland. Miles Doucette had finally had enough and contacted the police, saying he was very concerned for his safety. If Shirley had tracked him down and shown up in Pennsylvania, what else was she capable of? The police ordered Shirley off Doucette's property and advised her not to return. A few days later, on April 7, 1999, Doucette found Turner lying semi-conscious outside his home, covered in blood. She had crawled up the front steps of his home, scraping her wrists raw along the cement. She was wearing a black dress and was holding a bouquet of red roses. Shirley was rushed to the hospital, where it was determined she had ingested a large amount of over-the-counter drugs in a suicide attempt. The police found two suicide notes on her. One note was addressed to Miles Doucette, and the other to her psychiatrist that read, I'm not evil, just sick. The following day, Miles Doucette received a voicemail from a female caller who stated, Dr. Turner died last night. After her failed suicide attempt, Shirley Turner flew back to Newfoundland and returned to her medical studies. For the next two years, Shirley worked as a resident physician at a teaching hospital in Newfoundland. But it soon became obvious to work colleagues that Shirley was not exactly suited for the medical profession. During her first residency at a family practice in St. John's, patients complained that she was rude and abrupt. Her bedside manner was so poor, one patient at the clinic refused to return after an encounter with her. Shirley would also become belligerent towards her colleagues and supervisors, accusing them of treating her unfairly. They affectionately named her the witch. Another supervising physician felt that Shirley was just acting the role of a doctor, but had no actual interest in helping her patients. But any criticism of her work was met with extreme hostility. The supervisor eventually took out a restraining order against Shirley. But regardless of her less than favorable work reviews and performance, by the summer of 2000, 
Dr. Shirley Turner had completed the requirements of her residency training and was fully qualified to practice medicine. Shirley had also found love again after her tumultuous relationship with Miles Doucette. And this time, she was certain she had finally found the man of her dreams. In 1999, Shirley had begun dating Andrew David Bagby, an American medical student who was also studying at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. Bagby, who was 12 years younger than Shirley, was from Sunnyvale, California. He was the only son of Kathleen and David Bagby. Easygoing and likable, Andrew had a wide circle of friends, none of whom could understand his relationship with the awkward and insecure older woman. Shirley and Andrew dated for a year while finishing their medical studies in St. John's. Then, after graduating, Shirley accepted a job in Iowa, while Andrew moved to Syracuse, New York, to begin a surgical residency. Despite their demanding careers and physical distance, Shirley and Andrew tried to maintain a long-distance relationship. Shirley visited Andrew multiple times, while he traveled to see her in Iowa only once. In the fall of 2001, Andrew moved to La Trobe, Pennsylvania, to begin a family practice residency. Around the same time, Andrew decided to end his relationship with Shirley Turner. He found her overly possessive and volatile when things didn't go her way. And Andrew had already met another woman he wanted to date. But when Andrew told Shirley their relationship was over, she informed him that she was three months pregnant. Within a few days, Shirley flew to Pennsylvania to see Andrew and discuss their situation. The couple spent a few nights together before Shirley eventually admitted that she had lied about being pregnant to hang on to their relationship. Andrew was furious. He promptly took her back to the airport, saying he never wanted to see her again. Shirley was devastated. She had been in this place before, rejected and pushed away by the man she loved. But this time, there would be no pathetic suicide attempt, no black dress or bouquet of red roses. Shirley had something much more sinister in mind. On the morning of November 4, 2001, Dr. Andrew Bagby showed up at his family practice as he did every morning. It was an easy commute as it was just across the street from his house. Andrew was a well-liked, gregarious man. His patients loved him. But on that day, his work colleagues could tell that he was in an agitated state. He told his supervisor that his ex-girlfriend had driven over 900 miles from Iowa and had shown up at his door unannounced in the middle of the night. He wasn't sure what to do, but had agreed to meet with her after work. Andrew's supervisor suggested that Andrew should not meet her in private. From what he was saying, his ex-girlfriend sounded quite unstable. Andrew agreed and said he would come over to his supervisor's house with some beer 
after meeting with Shirley that evening. But Andrew never showed up. The following morning, November 5th, Andrew did not arrive for his 7.30 a.m. shift at the family practice. Andrew, always responsible and punctual, had never missed a day of work since starting at the clinic. His supervisor tried calling his cell phone, but it went straight to voicemail. He then walked across the street to Andrew's apartment, but there was no answer at the door. What Andrew's supervisor didn't know at the time was that while he was standing at Andrew's front door, a body had already been discovered not far away. The body of a man had been found in a day-use parking lot at Keystone State Park. He was lying next to his vehicle on the pavement and had been shot five times in the face, the chest, the buttocks, and point-blank in the back of the head. Tracing the registry on the vehicle, it was determined to belong to 28-year-old Dr. Andrew Bagby. After interviewing Andrew's work colleagues and supervisor at the family practice clinic, the police learned that Andrew's ex-girlfriend had shown up unannounced the day before. The Pennsylvania State Police definitely wanted to speak to Dr. Shirley Turner. But by the time they located her, she was already back in Iowa. Shirley claimed she had been sick in bed the previous day. But not long after Shirley claimed to know nothing about her lover's violent murder, digital records told a different story. Cell phone records showed that she had made cross-country calls both to and from Latrobe, Pennsylvania. She had also accessed eBay and Hotmail from Andrew's home computer and had used his home phone to call in sick. When confronted with the overwhelming digital evidence, Shirley Turner suddenly changed her story. She admitted that she had traveled to Pennsylvania to meet with Andrew Bagby. On the evening of November 4th, she said that they had met at the Keystone State Park, but when she left him, he was still alive. Shirley also stated that she did not own a gun, but investigators soon discovered that she had purchased a semi-automatic handgun that used 22 caliber ammunition, the same type of ammunition that had killed Andrew Bagby. The police also discovered that Shirley had been taking recent firearms lessons. As the investigation continued, witnesses came forward to say that they had seen Shirley Turner's Toyota RAV4 SUV parked beside Andrew Bagby's Toyota Corolla in the parking lot on the night of November 4th. Feeling that they had enough evidence to make an arrest, Pennsylvania homicide detectives traveled to Iowa to apprehend Shirley Turner. In her apartment, they found MapQuest printouts to Latrobe, Pennsylvania. But Shirley was nowhere to be found. Dr. Turner had already fled back to St. John's, Newfoundland. And since she had dual citizenship, American authorities would now have to go through a lengthy process of getting her extradited back to the U.S. to face charges of first-degree murder. 
Working with the police in St. John's, Pennsylvania homicide detectives requested surveillance on Shirley. They didn't want her disappearing again. As part of their covert surveillance, the police seized her trash. And it turned out Shirley Turner's garbage held a valuable secret. Copies of ultrasound printouts. Shirley Turner was pregnant. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On December 12, 2001, five weeks after the death of Andrew Bagby, Shirley Turner was arrested for his murder in Newfoundland. That same day, Pennsylvania authorities began extradition proceedings to have her sent back to the United States. Had Turner been arrested in Pennsylvania, where Andrew's murder occurred, she could have been held without bail pending trial. But Canadian law at the time stated that no one could be detained without the possibility of bail. A Newfoundland judge determined that she was not a threat to society despite the murder charge and released Shirley Turner on $75,000 bail. Shirley had to surrender her passports, report to the police every week, and was ordered not to contact Andrew Bagby's family. Back in California, Andrew Bagby's parents were grieving. 
Their son had been their world, and after his death, they felt they had nothing to live for. David Bagby and his wife Kathleen had even contemplated suicide. But then, they were informed that the woman accused of killing their son was now carrying their grandchild. Was it true? If it was, they knew they had to be there for that baby. Within weeks, the Bagbys had relocated to St. John's, Newfoundland, and began legal proceedings against Shirley Turner. They were requesting custody of their unborn grandchild. They now had a very good reason to live. For the next several months, Shirley remained free while her extradition case slowly made its way through numerous legal obstacles. Even though Canada and the U.S. enjoy friendly relations, the Canadian government does not sign extradition orders without being satisfied that there is enough evidence against the defendant to go to trial. The Attorney General of Canada must also be assured that the defendant, if found guilty in the United States, will not face the death penalty. Since Canada abolished capital punishment, in 1976. Prosecutors in Pennsylvania were extremely confident with the evidence they had against Shirley. But the state did still carry the death penalty. The last person executed in Pennsylvania had just been a few years earlier, in 1999. So while lawyers continued to battle it out on both sides of the border, David and Kate Bagby battled with the Newfoundland family court for sole custody of their grandchild. On July 18, 2002, nine months after Andrew Bagby's murder, Shirley Turner gave birth to a healthy baby boy. She named Zachary Andrew Turner. Shirley would not let the Bagbys see their new grandson. Three weeks after his birth, the Bagbys reluctantly agreed to an out-of-court agreement with Shirley that allowed them weekly supervised visitations with baby Zachary. It was a deal with the devil, but Kate and David were desperate to be in their grandson's life. They were hopeful that Shirley would eventually be found guilty of murdering their son and they would get full custody. So for now, they had to play nice with the woman they despised. In November of 2002, one year after Andrew's murder, a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Newfoundland ordered Shirley Turner to be returned to custody pending a decision by the Federal Justice Minister whether to have Shirley extradited to the U.S. Finally, the Bagbys got what they wanted, Shirley in prison, and they had custody of baby Zachary. But the new arrangements did not come without strings attached. The Bagbys were required to accept one collect phone call from Shirley every day from prison. And they were also required to take Zachary to visit his mother once a week. Having to continue to deal with Shirley was extremely difficult for the Bagbys, but they did as they were told. 
They didn't want anything to jeopardize their custody of Zachary, who was thriving under their loving care. But just two months later, in January of 2003, an appeals court judge agreed to release Shirley. While the offense Shirley had been charged with was violent and serious, it was not directed at the public at large, said the judge in her decision. In addition, the judge said, quote, There is no indication of a psychological disorder that would give concern about any potential harm to the public generally. End quote. As far as the judge was concerned, Shirley Turner had the fundamental right to be presumed innocent. Shirley was free again, and Zachary was promptly returned to her care. Despite their heartbreak, the Bagbys stayed in Newfoundland and were forced once again to bow to Shirley's wishes in order to maintain contact with Zachary. Shirley held all the cards and dictated when, where, and how David and Kate would spend time with their grandson. While the legal battles continued in Newfoundland, one of Andrew Bagby's closest childhood friends, filmmaker Kurt Kenny, began making a documentary about Andrew titled, Dear Zachary, A Letter to a Son About His Father. It would be a lasting tribute for Zachary to one day learn about the father he never met. On July 16, 2003, Zachary turned one. A birthday party was held at the local McDonald's, and all of those invited made a concerted effort to focus on the celebration instead of the tenuous circumstances they found themselves in. The Bagbys continued to walk on eggshells around Shirley, knowing that she was fragile and could deny them access to Zachary. But to everyone at the party, it was obvious that the carefree one-year-old already had a strong attachment to his grandparents. And Shirley did not like that. He likes you more than me, she complained to Kate Bagby during the birthday party, before walking away in tears. Shirley felt threatened by the Bagby's relationship with Zachary, and that spelled danger. Danger was also simmering on another front with Shirley during those hot summer days of 2003. Shirley had begun a new romantic relationship with a local guy in St. John's. Shirley became obsessed with her new lover within days of meeting him. But it wasn't long before Shirley's new love interest learned who she was and what she had been accused of. He cut off all communication. And true to her toxic attachment patterns, Shirley could not accept rejection and began obsessively calling the man. Fearing for his safety, he went to the St. John's police, who advised him there was nothing they could do unless she threatened him. In no uncertain terms, the man told Shirley to get lost. Naturally, his words fell on deaf ears. Resorting to her old tricks, she told the man she was pregnant with his child. But this time, her ruse didn't work. Shirley had been dumped.
in the early morning hours of Monday, August 18, 2003. Shirley Turner drove 25 kilometers from her apartment in St. John's to the seaside town of Conception Bay South. 13-month-old Zachary was fast asleep in his car seat. This was the town where the man who had just dumped her lived. She had no intentions of begging him to take her back, but she did want to give him something. She placed two pictures of herself, including one of her and Zachary, underneath his car in the driveway, alongside a used tampon. A few minutes later, Shirley, having left her car in a ditch, walked along a footpath towards Manuel's Beach and Foxtrap Marina, with a sleepy Zachary in her arms. It was dark and raining. The beach and boardwalk were empty. Waves lapped against the shore, while the sailboats bobbed up and down in their berths. Staring out at the vast, dark sea, Shirley was pleased with the decision she had made. That particular Monday, August 18th, had turned out to be a rather hot summer day for Newfoundland. Hundreds of local families and tourists flocked to the beach to enjoy the cool waters of the Atlantic Ocean. In the late afternoon, after most of the beachgoers had left for the day, a couple vacationing from Ontario were walking their dog along Manuel's Beach when they spotted something floating on the water not far from shore. Moving closer, to their horror, they realized it was a body. They ran for help. Within minutes, the police and Coast Guard arrived. The body was pulled from the sea. It was a fully clothed woman, but it didn't look like she'd been in the water for long. The police knew that a 42-year-old woman from St. John's and her infant son had been reported missing earlier that day. Could this be her? If so, where was her son? The police quickly sealed off the beach as curious onlookers started to gather. Fanning out, they walked along the shoreline looking for any evidence. But it wasn't long before they found what they were dreading. The body of an infant washed up on the sandy beach. Back in their small apartment in St. John's, David and Kate Bagby had been pacing for hours. Earlier in the day, they had been informed that Shirley and Zachary were missing. They were convinced that she had taken off again and was likely trying to get off the island. But where would she go? Her face had been all over the news. She would be instantly recognized. Was someone helping her? They refused to let their minds think the worst. But they knew Shirley had to be found quickly. All they could do was wait. But by 7 p.m., their agonizing wait was over, only to be replaced by a nightmare too terrifying to believe. Their beautiful grandson was dead. Two hours later, at a hastily convened press conference, the St. John's police confirmed that the bodies found at Conception Bay South 
were that of 42-year-old Shirley Turner and her 13-month-old son, Zachary Turner. An autopsy later revealed that both Shirley and Zachary had died as a result of drowning. But Zachary had been drugged before Shirley tied him to her chest with her sweater and jumped off the end of the wharf into the ocean. Toxicology reports indicated that the baby had ingested upwards of 30 tablets of Ativan, an anti-anxiety medication that Shirley crushed up and put in a bottle of baby formula. Shirley had also swallowed a lethal dose. For the Bagbys, their worst fears had come true. Shirley, having been rejected by another man and knowing she would likely be convicted of their son Andrew's murder, had chosen the easy way out and had decided to take Zachary with her instead of allowing him to be raised by his loving grandparents. David felt responsible for Zachary's death. He should have killed Shirley and gone to prison. He had fantasized about it, but had hoped that justice would prevail and Shirley would pay for their son's murder. But now his grandson was dead too. David and Kate's despair quickly turned to rage. Rage against the institutions and the supposed experts, lawyers and social workers who had allowed an accused murderer, an unstable woman with previous suicide attempts, complete control over a helpless infant. David Bagby wanted someone to pay and even fantasized about killing the judge who had released Shirley from prison. The judge, nor Newfoundland Children's Services, had ever requested a psychiatric evaluation on the accused murderer before allowing her full access to Zachary. Three years later, a 2006 inquiry concluded that Zachary's death had been entirely preventable and that Zachary should have never been in the care of his mother. Dr. Peter Markston, who conducted the inquiry, harshly criticized Newfoundland's Child Protection Services and the Child Advocates Office, saying that they had failed in their mandate to promote the rights and best interests of the child. Shirley Turner's history of suicide attempts, stalking behavior, and failure to parent her other children from previous relationships had not been given enough consideration. And according to Dr. Markston, it seemed as though all services had been focused on Shirley's needs rather than Zachary's. After the release of the scathing inquiry, a newly appointed child and youth advocate for the province promised a complete review of their services. But the Bagbys were still not satisfied. They were enraged that the justice system had allowed a first-degree murder suspect out on bail, allowing her access to an innocent child without any safeguards in place. They became determined to change Canada's bail laws. Little did they know how long their fight would be. Channeling his grief, David Bagby wrote a book about the case, Dance with the Devil, a memoir of murder and loss, published in 2007. 
And while the documentary film Dear Zachary was set aside after the baby's death, filmmaker Kurt Kenny committed to finishing it. It became a vehicle for justice reform and a lasting tribute to a father and a son. It was released in 2008 to overwhelming reviews and a demand for change. A DVD copy was sent to every member of Canadian Parliament. On October 23, 2009, six years after Zachary's death, Scott Andrews, then a Liberal MP from Newfoundland and Labrador, introduced a private member's bill, Bill C-464, or Zachary's Bill, which would change the Criminal Code of Canada to allow the courts to justify refusing bail to those accused of serious crimes in the name of protecting their children. The bill received unanimous support in the Canadian House of Commons. On December 15, 2010, Parliament amended the Canadian Criminal Code to allow individuals charged with a serious crime to be held without bail in the event they might pose a threat to someone 18 years of age or younger. The Bagbys were finally hopeful that the tragedy they had endured would never happen to another family. But despite their tireless work, nothing would ever bring back their son or their grandson. Many years later, Andrew's parents still longed for the gregarious young man who wanted to make a difference in the world. I think he'd be damn proud of us, said his dad. We were very proud of him for getting through university and into medical school. He loved his patients and he was right where he wanted to be. Today, 22 years after Andrew's murder, a legacy of love survives. Over 50 medical students specializing in family medicine have benefited from a scholarship at Excella Health Latrobe Hospital that Andrew's parents and their friends endowed in Andrew's name. After Zachary's murder nearly two years later, a similar fund was established at Memorial University of Newfoundland. It is the Dr. Andrew Bagby and son Zachary Andrew Memorial Bursary. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.